Hey everyone, good morning. It's really good to see you. It's really good to sing with you of how great our God is. Such a, a privilege. If you have a Bible this morning in print or maybe on your device, you can start making your way to Titus chapter 2. You'll find it uh, just after Philemon and Hebrews, uh, which is where we will be in uh, next week. We're going to spend our time looking at verses 10 through 14 this morning. If you and I haven't met, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at the church, and I had the privilege of opening God's word for us. As Jonathan said, welcome to you. We're really glad you are here worshiping with us. I hope everyone had a very wonderful Christmas. Uh, If you've been around these past uh, few weeks, we've been looking at both Old and New Testament passages that focus on the advent or the arrival of Jesus and why his His birth is such good news for us. And because we really believe that it is the greatest news in all the world and everyone needs to hear it, that even though Advent and Christmas are now behind us and we're on the brink of yet another new year, we're not going to take our eyes off of Jesus this morning and talk about something else just because the twinkle lights are coming down. But we're going to keep looking at him this morning until, like Brian said last week, until the light of his love warms our cold hearts and changes how we live. And I think this passage in Titus helps us do just that. Well, one of the reasons for choosing this particular text on this particular Sunday is because I believe it gives us a paradigm for living the Christian life. As we close the chapter on 2018, if you're anything like me, we're looking back at this past year and all that it had for us both good and bad, while also looking ahead to the new year and trying to take stock of our lives, things that we want to change, areas that we want to grow in. Maybe we feel a little bit this morning like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. Like, Are we really making a difference in how we live? And like that, Paul has us in this passage look back at what Christ has already accomplished for us in his first advent while also having us look ahead to his second advent when he comes again and how both of these things are intended by God to transform the way that you and I live today. And so what this passage is preaching to us is that if there's going to be any real change in us in the new in the new year or any other year the only way it will come about is by keeping our eyes on Jesus until his likeness is formed in us. But this time of year I'm reminded of how fast the years fly by, how short, brief life is, and how I want God to be glorified in my life and how I treat my wife and my kids and how I go about my work and how I respond to adversity and how I relate to my neighbors and how often I fall short of that. And time and again, I can hear Moses saying in my ear what he says in Psalm 90, which is what our call to worship was taken from this morning, when he says that the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, they are soon gone, and we fly away. It's like he's saying that our lives are but a blip on the radar of eternity, that they are here today, friends, and they are gone tomorrow. My grandma celebrated her 80th birthday yesterday and she has told me this dozens of times and she even told 
this to us when we were talking to her yesterday about how fast her life has gone. It was 80 years like that. And for someone in their 30s, I already feel that. And I think that's why Moses prays to God in that psalm. God, teach us to number our soon-to-be-gone limited days. Why? That we may get a heart of wisdom. He's praying there, God, help us to spend the limited time that we have in living for and giving our lives to that which counts in eternity, not to be frivolous, but to be wise. And what's the beginning of wisdom that Proverbs tells us? It's the fear of the Lord. You want to fear the Lord in 2019? It's to know and to love God. It's to walk in his ways. It's to show with our lives his supreme worth that we would put into practice what we say we believe is true about God and the gospel. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is getting at here in this letter. Paul had taken this good news on one of his missionary journeys to the island of Crete, which is in the Mediterranean Sea, and people believed in Jesus, and churches were started, and Titus is left there to help get these new Christians and these new churches established. And one of his primary aims in writing is that he wants these guys to know the gospel. And not merely on an intellectual head level, but he wants them to be so stunned by the grace of God that they can't help but share it with others. He wants them to be so rooted in their redemption that their work life and their home life and their public life and their private life would bear fruit so that Jesus looks really attractive and really compelling to those around them and more people come to know him. And friends, that's what I'm praying for myself in the new year and that's what I'm praying for us as a church. So Paul is driving home here this connection between head and heart. Between what we say we believe about the gospel and about grace and our behavior. Between our knowledge of God and our godliness or our lack of it. He's saying that if we truly believe that in Christ we have been redeemed from sin and death and hell and we've been brought to God and we don't deserve any of it. That if we meditate on that long enough on what that means, so that it gets from our heads down into our hearts, it can't help but produce in us a desire to make this glorious gospel known. Because all of us love to tell others about the things that we love most, don't we? We love to talk about our favorite TV show or movie or sport team or our favorite restaurant or our favorite person. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his short but very powerful chapter on praising from his book, Reflections on the Psalms. Listen to what Lewis says. He says, I had not noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. 
that it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So I want you to hang on to that thinking as we make our way through this passage because those of us who have experienced the love of God and who love him for it, Paul says, it can't help but tell, help but tell of that love to others to show it to them. So Paul is going to talk about works here, about good works. But on the front end here, don't hear him say and don't hear me say that works will ever make us worthy of God. Because they never could and they never will. But do hear him saying that the grace of God, when it has its intended effect on us, that it will make us more gracious to those around us. That the gospel will make you more godly. That the good news will produce in you good works. That the love of Christ will compel you to love others. And so what you see at the beginning of chapter 2 and the verses just before ours, which aren't in your bulletin, is Paul showing us what that looks like in practice. So for instance, he says, starting in verse 2, he says that older men are to be sober-minded and dignified and sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Younger women are to be self-controlled, pure, kind. Younger men are to be self-controlled. Slaves are to be submissive to their master. He has all of us covered, right? That's a snapshot of how the gospel is lived out on the ground level where you and I do life together. But if you left it there and if Paul left it there, you'd be tempted to think that the Christian life is just a bunch of do these things but don't do those things. But that's not Christianity, friends, and that is not good news for us. Thank God, because none of us could do that. But then we come to verse 10 of our passage, which is where we will pick it up. This is Titus chapter 2, beginning in the middle of verse 10. Paul writes, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we say once again, how great, how great is our God. Help us to see your greatness now in this passage. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In our redeemer's name we pray. Amen. That phrase there in verse 10 really captured my attention this week as I was preparing to preach this morning and really framed the way in which I think about this passage After calling these new believers, these new Christians, to a life of obedience, that this is how you should live and how you should love one another, he gives them the reason for it. He says that it serves a purpose. 
And what is that purpose? He says the purpose is to adorn the doctrine of God or to adorn the gospel, which will in turn advance it. Verse 10, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In just a few short words there, Paul gives the purpose of your life and my life. That word adorn there means to make beautiful. It means to do credit to. It means to make something have an attractive appearance. And what is that something there? It's the gospel. You know, I love Christmas. And I love decorating for Christmas. And I love getting a tree and watching my kids' faces light up. But I'm guessing that the vast majority of us didn't go up into the mountains and chop down a Fraser fir. We didn't go up into the attic and get the tree down and then set it up in our living room and not decorate it. Because very few of us want a plain old pine tree in our house, right? But what, what do we do when we get the tree? We decorate it. And what happens? The tree is transformed, right? What once seemed mundane becomes beautiful. And it becomes attractive and warm and inviting. It's like Paul is saying here, that's what you and I are called to. That we are called to be decorators. That the gospel of grace is already beautiful. We don't make it beautiful. It's already beautiful. But how does it become beautiful to those who don't yet believe it so that they want to believe it? That how will they come to see Christ as compelling and trust in him? The answer that Paul is giving here is that that will happen through you and me. It will happen by our adorning the gospel through our good works, by the way we live and the way we love. That's how the gospel will advance, and that's how our God will be adored. Now, the question is, how does that actually happen? If you've been around downtown press for even a short period of time, hopefully you've heard us talk about our vision as a church, something that We want to be true. That's not yet true. Our vision as a church is to see every avenue of downtown Greenville connected with the good news and loved well. But how will that vision become a reality? This passage, I think, provides one avenue in helping us arrive at that answer. Here's the main thing that I want to try to help us see here, and I've already said it, that we will adorn the gospel so the word Paul uses, will make it attractive to others through our good works and it will advance in Greenville when we, friends, adore the God of the gospel. And Paul is going to help us adore him this morning by reminding us of our redemption of what Christ Jesus has done for us. So that's how I want us to look at it this morning as we are between the advents by looking, keeping our eyes on Jesus as our Redeemer and what he has done for us in redemption, which is doing something in us now and what he will do for us long before we ever do anything for him because good news always, always comes before good works. So three points this morning. First, I want to look at the power of our redemption. How is it even possible for you and I to adorn the already attractive gospel? Paul's answer he's going to give here is, all grace. Second thing, let's look at the purpose of our redemption, and then third, the prize of our redemption. So three points, all starting with the letter P. My preaching professor would be so happy with me this morning. 
I was tempted to use the word proud there, but I refrain. Let's look at the power of our redemption. We see this in verses 11, 12. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, there is a lot there, but let me draw out one big thing. That the grace of God is not only pardon for sin, and man, it is that. We've been forgiven of our sin, praise God. It's not only pardon for sin, but it's also power to live a godly life. Notice that Paul is drawing a direct line from the godly life that's being called for in the previous verses to what he is saying here. And we know that because of the word for there at the beginning of verse 11. But here's the point that he seems to be making. The only reason, the only reason that you and I can do any good that will show to those around us that the gospel of grace is, in, is indeed good news for them is because God has first shown himself to us. He says that God, that grace has made an appearance. And we all know who he's talking about here, don't we? Grace has a name, and it is Jesus. Do you remember what the Apostle John says at the beginning of his gospel? He says, the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's talking about Jesus' first advent, and the question is, what was so significant about his coming? What did his appearing show us? I think he highlights at least two things. First, he shows us that salvation is the work of grace. It is not our work. Never is. Never will be. Verse 11, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people. Two quick things on this. The first, the reason that you and I are able to make Christ look compelling to those around us, and not only that, but the reason that Christ Jesus is compelling is because our salvation from beginning to end is not a work that you and I do, but it is a gift that has been given to us. He came bringing salvation. Now, if you have been in the church for any length of time, you know this to be true, right? But the real question for us, including the preacher up here this morning, is, it, is that truth transforming us? This news that Jesus came to live the perfect life that we could never live, to do the works that we could never do, to die the death that we deserve, to take our penalty upon himself, pay for our sin, to rise and to secure our redemption forever. And that was all grace that we contributed nothing to it but our sin. Is that transforming us? So Paul says here, that Jesus, whose name literally means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves, shows us that salvation is given. It is not earned. It is the work of grace. It is not our work. So we have to be adamant then, adamant, when talking about good works in the Christian life, never to make them a condition of salvation. That if we just do these things and God will be pleased with us, that it's Jesus plus something else Because what we do, friends, or what we don't do, never can and never could earn God's love or put him in our debt. 
We are redeemed now and always exclusively on the merit of Christ's work for us, which means if there is any, if there is any affection in your heart for God this morning, if there is any genuine love for your neighbor this morning, it is because we have first been loved unconditionally by a gracious God. Never lose sight of that. Good works are the going public of an inward heart change that's been brought about by the good news of God's grace. Grace is always first. If it's not, then it's not the gospel and it's not the Christian life. Now the question is, I don't want us to miss this because this is the point that Paul is driving home. How will this salvation that Jesus came to bring, that is all grace, that is for all people, be made known here in Greenville and around the world, how will they see and how will they believe? How will it appear attractive to them? The answer Paul gives here is by your adorning the gospel through the way that you live. Way you treat one another. Through your good works and your acts of love, Paul says elsewhere in Romans, and he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We who have received the greatest news, who see Christ as infinitely compelling, will want others to see him that way too. That's precisely what compelled the Apostle Paul to take the gospel to them, and that's what will compel us here today. And even more to the point, that's what compelled Christ to bring salvation to us. The second thing that Paul highlights here is not only does the grace of God save, but it also sanctifies. He's gonna say this in a couple different places, but look there at verse 12. He says, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He's saying that Jesus came not only to remove the penalty of sin, which is hell, which is eternal separation from God. He came not only to remove the penalty of sin, but he came also to destroy its power and its appeal. But how is he going to do that? As many of you know, I'm currently a dad of two small children with another one arriving, Lord willing, in May. And if you're a parent here this morning, I'm sure that you feel the same way I do, that my desire as their dad is that I want them to love and know Jesus at an early age. And so on our better days, that desire shapes how my wife and I parent our kids, that my goal as their dad is to live and to love in such a way You know, they get a front row seat to that show every single day. And trust me, it's not always spectacular. But to do it in such a way that keeps pointing them to Jesus, and I'm reminded all the time of how I fall short of that. But that is what I am seeking to do in my instructing them. Like, hey guys, like, you keep doing that, it's not going to end well for you. Mom and dad have something better for you. God has something better for you. Do that in my instructing, in my encouraging, in my disciplining, that sin has consequences, that there is someone better. There is something better for you. Try to do that in modeling for them what it means to actually follow Jesus and to be glad about it. 
Like following Jesus is the greatest thing in all the world. That's what the word training is getting at there in verse 12. But the question is, how does the grace that has appeared to us in Christ Jesus actually get applied to our hearts and begin to change us from the inside out? The answer here is, it happens by the Spirit of Christ who is sanctifying us who is shaping us more into the image of Christ. He is helping us to see sin for what it really is. He's helping to wean us of our addiction to it so that it loses its attraction and its appeal. He's helping us to see Jesus for who he really is, infinitely superior, infinitely more supreme, more satisfying than anything else so that we adore him above all things, more than money, more than sex, more than marriage, you name it. And when we adore him, we will adorn the gospel of grace through our good works. Paul is saying here that you are not who you once were if you are in Christ. Godliness is possible because God himself now dwells within you. Change is possible because the spirit of Christ is at work producing in you the character of Christ. So that's the the power of our redemption. Again, the grace of God not only saves us, it sanctifies us by the spirit. It's not only pardon for sin, but it is power to live a godly life for the glory of God and the good of others here in Greenville, which leads to the second point, the purpose of our redemption. Look there at verse 14. We'll come back to 13 in just a minute. Paul says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So much we could say here, but again, Paul, God wants us to know the whole point of why Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world, came to die in the first place so that it gets down deep and we delight in making him known to the people around us. And so he says here that Jesus has redeemed us from something and he's redeemed us for something and we can never divorce those two things. So first, what did he redeem us from? Two big things here. He set us free from our slavery to sin and from the stain of sin. We see the first one there at the beginning of the verse, which is precisely the point that he makes back in in verse 12. In other words, Jesus didn't come, hear this, Jesus didn't come and die just so that our behavior could be modified. That we would just stop doing certain things. Because the issue is much deeper than that. That sin has infected every single part of us. But Jesus came and gave up his life to give you and me new life with new hearts and new affection. Because here's the thing. Our sin keeps us from loving others because it enslaves us to self, to our needs, to our wants, to our loves at the expense of everyone else. And our sin keeps us from seeing and loving God because it puts us in the seat of the most important person in the universe rather than him. 
but we could not cause ourselves to see his supreme worth. We couldn't do that. And we could not free ourselves from our slavery and keep God's law perfectly. But you know what? It would be a horrible thing. And it would not be good news at all for any of us if Jesus came to tell us that our sins are forgiven while leaving us bound in our chains. That would not be good news. He came to set us free, but he also came to purify us, to remove the stain of sin. And again, this is the work of the Spirit that he's talking about back in verse 12, that this past grace of God that's been poured out on us, that's been lavished on us in the death of Christ is the same grace that's being applied to us in the present by God's Spirit to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. He's removing the stain of sin because you and I can't cleanse ourselves. Only he can do that. Now the question is, what do we do with our freedom? What has he redeemed us for? Because he's redeemed us from the penalty and the power of sin. He's purifying us, but for what? And this is where the good news gets even greater. Paul says here, He's redeemed us for God himself. That you and I were made for God, to be a people for his own possession. I'm going to say more about that in just a minute when we get to the last point. But we can look at what he says here from at least a couple different angles, both of which I think are glorious. From one angle, what this means is that in the death of Christ, we are no longer slaves of sin what he has said. We're no longer slaves of sin, but we have been set free and set apart to be slaves of God and now free by the Spirit to obey all that our master commands. And everything, friends, that he commands, this life of good works, this life of obedience and love for God and love for one another is the best life possible because it's ultimately for our good. Jesus purchased that for us. We are a purchased people. As Paul says elsewhere, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price, the very life of Christ. So glorify God in your body. Make God look great through your good works. But when we look at it from another angle, we are not just slaves of God, but we are also sons and daughters of God. We're adopted into his family. Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. That's a verse to meditate on for the year. And we're not only a purchased people, we are a possessed people because the Spirit of God who dwells within us bears witness and makes us sons and daughters of God himself. Paul wants us to know that this, that considering all that the Savior has done for us is the greatest news in all the world. Do we believe it? That we've been saved from sin. We've been set apart. We are slaves of the greatest master. We are sons and daughters of the greatest father And now empowered by his spirit to showcase through our serving others such a great salvation. 
And that's exactly what he says next here, that Jesus gave himself to redeem a people zealous for good works. Which hopefully by now, after saying all that we've said so far about the gospel of grace and about the God of the gospel, this doesn't sound strange or strong-arming to us, that we are to be a people zealous for good works. Because here's the crucial connection between head and heart that Paul wants us to make that telling these new Christians and us here today for whom Christ has done the greatest good, that they should be zealous, they should be passionate for good works, that they're to be kind and gracious, self-controlled, patient, and loving toward others is not coercion. It's not threat. But it's the most natural thing in the world for them to do. Why? Because Christ, who first loved us, who gave himself for us, and the one who now possesses us, the spirit of Christ, is producing in us his love that we might gladly give ourselves in love for the good of others. That when the seeds of this glorious gospel, friends, get planted into our hearts, that it will bear fruit in our lives. And it will look an awful lot like love for God and love for others. And it will look an awful lot like Jesus. So this is the purpose of our redemption, that we would adorn the gospel of grace by glorifying the God of the gospel through our good works. And now, briefly, the third and last point, the prize or the reward of our redemption. We find this in verse 13. But before we read it, one way... That we can look at what Paul has said so far is that he has shown Jesus to be for us the means of our redemption. That nobody can be saved apart from him. He came bringing salvation. It is given. It is not earned. And he's also the model for us. He's the means and he's the model. He shows what it looks like to give your life for others because he gave himself for us. So that if we need help fleshing out what good works actually look like in the Christian life, then all we need to do is look at the life of Jesus modeled for us, portrayed for us in the Gospels. He's the model for us. Now Paul says, if that's not enough motivation for you to live and to love like this, here's the greatest motivation of all. He says there's a reward coming. And what is that reward? The reward is that we get God. That's the reward. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, the beauty, the excellence, the worth of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful and a stunning sentence. Here's the thing, friends, and if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. The greatest gift of the gospel is not grace. It's not that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is hell, and that we get heaven. As great as that is, it is not that we are no longer enslaved by it and under its power, which is also great. The greatest gift of the gospel is that we get God. 
We have been redeemed for him and he is the reward that we are waiting to receive in full. Paul's talking here about the second advent of Jesus when we will see him in all of his glory and he calls it his appearing. Which if you notice is the exact same word that he uses back in verse 11. So he has both advents in mind. In the first, the grace of God appeared. In the second, the glory of of God, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he wants us to see a connection between the two, and it is at least this. It's more than this, but it's at least this. That we cannot see the glory and the beauty and the worth of God apart from the grace of God in the gospel. That's where it is revealed to us. The only reason that anyone receives and rests in the grace of God is because in it, in the incarnation of Jesus, when he came, first time, the glory of God is revealed, that we see him as he truly is, our greatest good, and we receive his grace. And so the question for us this morning is, do we see him as our greatest good, or do we see him as a means to some other good, like getting out of hell? Because God will not be glorious to us. And he will not be glorified in us if something else is our happy or blessed hope, as Paul says here. But when we have truly tasted grace, we will long for more of the one who gives it, and that is God himself. Because the greatest gift, the reward of our redemption is that we get God now by faith and at his coming face to face forever. And when we adore him, then we will adorn the gospel that gives us him. We'll make it attractive to those around us through our good works, and it will advance on every avenue of Greenville and around the world. So as we close, and as you, as you think about the coming year, and you try to apply this, are you wanting to be more merciful? Then meditate on the mercy of God until his mercy wells up within you. Are you struggling to be kind? And keep considering the kindness of Christ. Patient, his patience. Do you want to give your life for others? Then look to the one who gave his life for you. Keep looking at him until his love so warms your heart that its light and its heat are seen and felt by those around you. Keep pulling up a seat here on Sunday mornings for worship and be reminded of your redemption. Keep pulling up a seat at the kitchen table with a Bible open and praying that God would give you eyes to see his glory revealed in his written word. This is how the Spirit does his work in us, making us more like Jesus. Let me close with this. For Christmas, we bought our, our daughter Vivian an okay-to-wait clock. Have you heard of these things? Basically, it's supposed to help your kid stay in bed and to know when it's time to get up. Pretty straightforward, right? And the reason, reason we got this clock is because apparently we have a, a child who loves to compete with the sun for who will be the first to light us with their presence each and every day and who apparently seems to win every single time. I guess she just has a a zest for life. But here's what we've observed. She'll just lie there looking at it, just waiting for that light to turn green, which tells her that it's time for her to get out of bed. 
while she's doing that, she's saying over and over again, it's taking a long time. <laughs> and her second favorite thing to say is, Mom, Dad, she just needs reassurance that we're there because it's dark still. But when it does finally turn green, her little face lights up because all she really wants to do is run those little legs down the hall and jump into our bed and see mom and dad face to face. Now, I couldn't help but think about all of us in light of this passage and praying that we would bear a resemblance to her, that we would long for the coming of Jesus like she longs for the green light telling her it's time. That when we feel like it's never going to happen, that he's taking a long time and we are fearful. He's given us his spirit and is telling us that we're not alone. And when he comes, and he will come as sure as the sun will rise, our faces will light up and we will run down the hall as it were. And we will see him no longer by faith, but face to face forever in all his glory. That's what the gospel of grace gives us, friends. I pray that's how we would be here in the coming year. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious gospel, the greatest good the gospel gives to us is that we get you God, would you plant that in our hearts? But for some of us, we don't feel that way. We don't have desire for you, have an affection for you, and we don't have love for one another. God, only you through your spirit can help us, give us eyes to see, produce that work in us. So God, starting with the preacher this morning, would you make that happen? Make it happen for myself, make it happen for these here. We pray this in the beautiful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.